Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will review a cooperative game and have a related design discussion. Hey, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about one of Peter's favorite games, Keyforge. Well, yes, the Keyforge Adventures, to be specific, because Keyforge, not very co-op. Yeah, not, not very co-op at all, but Keyforge Adventures, both solo and co-op, and it's a print and play, so we'll be getting into our thoughts on that. And our design discussion is going to be on exactly that, the print and play aspect. But before we get into that and chat about games we've been playing recently, we'd like to thank some of our Patreon supporters. So for this week, we are thanking Daniel Halliday, a co-op MVP, Derek Rickert, a co-op MVP, and Sean Gibbons, a co-op lover. Uh, Thank you, Daniel, Derek, and Sean. Thank you to everybody. Uh, Even if you can't support us on Patreon, if that doesn't work in your financial situation right now, you can uh, review this podcast. We would love that. Join us on our Discord and have chats with us. Go subscribe to either our streaming or our non-streaming YouTube channel. Lots of ways to get involved, but we certainly appreciate our patrons helping us to be able to put on the show and make technological upgrades and all that kind of stuff. And this week, I'm going to put a special shout out to the One Stop Co-op Shop stream channel. We're putting out a lot of stuff over there. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. We're getting close to a thousand subscribers. That lets us do a lot of cool things, including sending out our weekly schedule right there on the channel. It lets us do a lot of other things as well. So please, if you haven't had a chance yet, check out One Stop Co-op Shop streamed and subscribe. Thank you. So Peter, what have you been playing recently? Well, I want to talk about that. Before we get into that, I don't I don't have a lot of new plays lately. So one thing I want to talk about is these award winners. The reason I want to talk about it is because it's co-op time. Yep, co-op revolution, baby. That's right. So we got Spiel de Jar was just announced a couple of days ago. Paleo won the Kinner Spiel de Jar, which is like the connoisseur game of the year. And you called it, man. I did not think it was going to win, but you were like, no, Paleo's it. What, what was the one that it was up against that he thought would beat it? Lost Runes Arnak. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm happy that, I mean, I, I like Arnak okay, but I love Paleo, so I'm really happy that it won. Yeah, and I liked him about the same, just Arnak had gotten so much buzz, and I've only played Arnak once, to be fair, so it could certainly go up or down for me. Paleo, I played a lot more, obviously, because we reviewed it, and I really like that game as well, so I'm happy. Look, anytime co-op games win, I'm happy, right? And I think we're all going to win because a cool thing is with Paleo's new buzz, it's getting like another, I think, reprint in the U.S. So it's going to be more available. And on top of that, they've done at least two like mini expansion packs that just have one new set that you can mix and match. And those are getting U.S. distribution and printing now as well. So it's not like Arnak needed any more love. They've already announced another expansion for it. But I'm glad that Paleo is finally getting some uh, buzz from this ward, you know. Yeah, and the Spiel de Jar was also won by a co-op game, which is Micro Macro City, which you and I both like as well. Yeah, no, it's definitely a fun one, and I hope they do more in that series, and I'm sure this win will make sh- <laughs> doubly sure that happens, probably. Well, they've already announced another one, and it may even be out. If it's not out, it's coming out very soon. So the second one in the Micro Macro City-verse is coming out. Well, hopefully they print it enough, because I know it's still super hard to find the original one. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a great game, right? I mean, or is it a game? Well, yeah, I was, I was going to say, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun experience. I would not go as far as to call it a great game, but I loved playing it, and I certainly want to play more of it with my son. You know, this is the first time where people are like, is it a game? Is it not a game? Where I'm kind of on the leaning toward the it's not a game side almost every time I defend that it is a game. But yeah, I don't even know if there's loss conditions. So I guess giving up is your loss. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> if, if you decide you don't want to, because they even say in there, if you're like having a hard time, just read the next clue, you know, and just like move on anyway. So I guess if you like literally get so frustrated that you just stop entirely, then you lose. <laughs> yes. And, and in more ways than one, really. Like if you're, if you're that frustrated, you're probably never picking it back up again. So yep, uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. But also the Dice Tower Awards were announced not that long ago and the crew won there too. So again, boom, 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 co-op. Yep. I I sometimes hate the crew, but I still play it over and over again. So I guess I love it as well. I don't know. (laughs) That that is a game that is so funny because I thought you hated that game with all your heart, soul, like everything within you. I thought hated that game, but you're always the one to suggest playing it. Literally always. 
So I, I don't know. I always enjoy it. I always have fun, but you just get frustrated every time, but yet you keep coming back, man. I mean, you know, it's like we, we always play it like six or seven times and like three or four of those plays are very frustrating, but I guess the other three or four <laughs> are fun enough that it's okay. Well, and I don't get frustrated because it's quick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially, I mean, the thing is, we, we should say we're playing it almost all on uh, BGA. And if I was playing it in person and had to shuffle the deck every time, it just was terrible luck and we lost in two seconds. Maybe I'd be more frustrated. <laughs> so I'm already a little bit frustrated. I could be more frustrated with the physical game. Sure. But I'm excited to try the second one out and see what they've changed and what kind of new concepts they've come up with. Absolutely. It's like into the deep or something like that. So, I mean, there has to be something different. They can't just do the same thing again, right? With just a different story. I would hope not anyway. <laughs> well, I'm most excited to read that story because that's definitely the most important part of the crew for me. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Go back and listen to our crew review for that little tidbit. Bottom line, don't read the story. Just figure out what you got to do next because <laughs> like, it literally takes longer to read the story than it does to play the next section of the game. It's ridiculous. But the only thing I've been playing is Marvel Champions. Let's be honest. Oh, that's not true. I actually did play some solo games while I was on my trip. I took uh, two games with me. I took Castles of Burgundy, which was one of my favorite games of all time. And their solo mode in that game is very different than their competitive game. So it's really interesting. It's a really interesting puzzle. Certainly, it's pretty quick. Probably playing a half hour, 45 minutes or so. No, I really enjoyed that. It's an interesting, unique puzzle. I don't know how much replayability it has because there's only two boards to it. But I've only played the first board. I've played a couple times, lost the first time, won the second time. So looking forward to exploring it more. And there's definitely ways to change the difficulty. But I don't know that there's changes in the puzzle, if that makes sense, even though the difficulty can scale. No, it does make sense. And I think I watched a bit of uh, Colin did a playthrough on the non-streaming channel for that one. And I I like Castles of Burgundy fine. So that's cool to have solo play as well. And the other one I played is another old favorite, which is Core Worlds. I played the solo and I played that one, gosh, five or six times solo while I was off on my vacation. So really enjoyed that a lot as well. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did the coverage on the channel for it and I I found it played pretty smoothly. Like, it, it kind of does what it does and gets out of the way and lets you play Core Worlds, which is fine with me. <laughs> it made me want to play competitively again, that's for sure. And I had never played with the newest expansion, and I played with that one. I played with the first expansion, but not the second one. And I really think it adds something, and I, I liked what it did, and it didn't overcomplicate it. I was worried about that because the first expansion added quite a bit of complexity. I think the second one does a much better job of just adding a very little bit of complexity. Yeah, I agree with that. So good uh, competitive deck builder to check out Core Worlds and the Nemesis expansion is coming at some point with solo play. So those were my plays in in addition to Marvel Champions. I mean, I love that game. It keeps getting better. I'm sure you're going to hear about it soon. Terrence and I will probably do a podcast about what we think of the, I guess, second and third cycle because we're three cycles in at this point, getting ready to start a fourth cycle. So I think it's about time for an update. I mean, you know my end thoughts on it, but how do each of those cycles compare and which one should you get? What should you get into if you're starting? I think that'd be a fun update to do. Nice. As for me, uh, it's kind of still Kickstarter season, like summer Kickstarter season. So that's most of the things I've been playing is to keep up with my coverage. But I did, this is unusual for me, I've played two different cooperative light dungeon crawlers on TTS recently and enjoyed both of them quite a lot. And I don't always like dungeon crawlers, so (laughs) that's uh, good. Uh, One of them is coming to Kickstarter in September, I think. It's the Red Dragon Inn dungeon crawler. So it's by the people who do the Red Dragon Inn and Battle for Greyport. And we certainly love Battle for Greyport as a cooperative game. Absolutely. It's tough to tell. The first scenario is such a tutorial that like you barely even have cool things to do and it's way too easy. But I like how simple and straightforward the game is. And I could definitely see playing it with like family or my kids. And the people I've played with on TTS have generally enjoyed it. But we're all kind of curious to see what the later scenarios look like and how your characters level up. So I'm not sure, but hopefully I'll get a prototype. We're kind of seeing if that'll happen. And if so, I can uh, do something with it. And Steve uh, did a video on the streaming channel. Yeah, it was like an hour and a half. Like it was a real quick video, too. Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, playing without the stream and, like, all that kind of stuff, it's like a 30-minute game per scenario, maybe. And at least from what I've seen, I don't know if this is what the physical thing will look like. It's like you put out a single board, kind of like Jaws of the Lion uh, pages in their book, and, like, all the enemy actions are on one side, so you don't need any separate enemy cards. 
all of the uh, spaces where you place enemies are on there. So it's kind of like just one big board you set up, no hunting for tiles. So it just seems like a streamlined experience to play, which that's often one of the things that pushes me away from crawlers. Yeah, well, and I think his was actually a playthrough and review. I shouldn't have made it sound like an hour and a half was a quick play. It was, you know, a quick play plus an interview, I think, all in one video. So that was kind of neat. So definitely check that out on the uh, One Stop Co-op Shop streamed YouTube channel. Yep, and we'll have more coming on that one. And then one I might do a video of, and Steve might as well, because he's been really enjoying it, is Valor and Villainy, the newer version, which is fully solo co-op. I think the original was competitive. I think it's called Ludwig's Tomb or something. I don't know. It's got some subtitle. But this is another light dungeon crawler. It's very, like, goofy. Um, It has unlockable content, but no, like, permanent legacy content. Everything's replayable. Has some, like, branching choices, branching story. And, yeah, so far, I I actually just played earlier today on TTS. They have uh, this is available freely through the Kickstarter. Uh, The Kickstarter finished, by the way, but they'll have pre-orders soon. They have a tutorial on the first four, like, missions available on TTS. And I've played through three of them, and I'm really enjoying every play of it so far. So I might get a prototype of that just to show it off. I know it's a little bit late (laughs) since the Kickstarter finished. But uh, even if not, I might just do a TTS video for it. And I think I'll probably be backing it. But, you know, we'll see if the last mission holds up as well as the other three did. Yeah, so again, that's Valor and Villainy. And the subtitle is Ludwig's, or Ludwig's, with a K, Labyrinth. But if you just look up Valor and Villainy Kickstarter, I'm sure it's the first thing that'll pop up. Nice. And maybe we'll do a uh, streamed version of that as well. I mean, with it being TTS, it's easy enough for all of us to play together, which, you know, I always think makes for better plays when you got multiple people on it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I was going to say, uh, if Steve can come, he's played the game a bunch or I can teach it, but I think you'll enjoy it. It's it's fun. It's quick. It actually, uh, this might make you interested, Peter. It reminds me a bit of claustrophobia in that there's kind of like a fun puzzle in exploring and putting out the tiles to try to make them connect and stuff. Although, of course, it's a solo co-op game, so the enemy is just automated. But <laughs> sometimes the claustrophobia enemy feels like they're automated, too, so not a big deal. Yeah, no, no, no. I, that does interest me. I, I like claustrophobia a lot, and I like dungeon crawls more than you do. So uh, it's definitely interesting to me. But all right, uh, enough of what we've been playing. Let's talk about Keyforge. So what is Keyforge first, Peter? Why don't you kind of give the, the skinny on that? Yeah, so they've created this whole universe around Keyforge. And basically, there are these different archons who are your character. And interestingly, these decks, if you don't know anything about Keyforge, are all unique. So your archon deck, every deck you get is named. It has a unique name on it, and it can't be changed. So unlike a lot of collectible card games where you're building your deck or doing things or deck builders, none of that's going to happen. You get a unique deck. They're 10 bucks to buy, and you play your games with that deck. And the hope is that you get better at and more skilled with that. But getting back to the theme is you're these archons who are fighting over forging these keys. So this game's not about fighting or defeating your enemies, things like that. Certainly that is in there, but it's more about gaining amber, which is this resource you're all fighting over, and collecting enough amber to forge a key. And when you forge three keys, then you can kind of unlock your potential, unlock the power. And so it's kind of neat where it's one of these fighting head-to-head games that we've all played a hundred times that just kind of twists it a little bit in a couple ways. Number one, with the unique archons that all play very differently. And number two, where you're not fighting to win, you're actually trying to forge keys to win the game. Yep. And uh, what they kind of add in with the adventures, and there are two of them. These are free print and play from Fantasy Flight Games. So you do need to print it out or I guess find like a shop that can do it for you. Uh, One of them is called The Rise of the Key Rackin, and the second one is, oh, what is it? (laughs) Abyssal Conspiracy? Abyssal Conspiracy. Abyssal Conspiracy. Yes, so Rise of the Key Rackin, Abyssal Conspiracy. Rise of the Key Rackin is a combat-focused one. You have to, you have a boss, this giant Kraken creature that has 30 life, and or 30 per player, and you just got to beat him down (laughs) before he beats you down, or uh, create too many of his advanced events to, like, rise up out of the ocean and, I guess, destroy the world. And then the Abyssal Conspiracy one has you, it has like a little like set of cards. So kind of like a map you're moving around on and you are trying to get into the depths, find this artifact and then use it to win the game again before the enemies advance too much and uh, achieve their own goals. But they both have a lot of similarities in how they play based on a difficulty setting. After each player's turn, you draw one or more cards from the enemy deck. Sometimes extra cards have been put aside by effects and things. 
and you resolve each card, and just like regular player cards, they'll put out enemies that can fight you or gain amber for the boss because the boss is trying to uh, gain amber and build their own stuff. They'll also put out artifacts that have ongoing effects, or they'll do these really nasty action cards that you play and then discard. So in a way, it's a lot like playing against a competitive opponent, although the effects are very different. A lot of your stuff works differently, and of course, you're all working together to kind of do things to the monster together. So I think that's, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of mechanics in Keyforge, and I think some of them will probably come up in the discussion. So why don't we jump into our thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, the big one for players' turns and the big thing that also differentiates Keyforge is each Archon has three houses, and the way you play your turns is you're going to select one of those three houses, and you can play every card that has something to do with that house, whether that card's in your hand or you've already played it down to the table. So that's the key mechanism of Keyforges. You select one of your three houses each round, you play all the cards from that house, or discard. You can't discard out of suit, and you can't play out of suit. So you kind of stay with that one house the whole time and uh, play that. And your turns play exactly the same as they would in base Keyforge in the Adventures. All right. So if this is your first time joining us, welcome. Thank you for joining us. What we do here is we review things in a top five format where we start with number five, what we think is the least important thing you need to know about the game and move all the way up to number one, which is the most important. Of course, all five are important or they wouldn't make our list. So Mike, let's start with you. What's your number five thing to know about Keyforge Adventures? So I wasn't sure whether to include this, but I was kind of like some elements were going together for me. So I ran out of like five things. So I decided to put this on and it's just kind of like the release model and availability and what you need to put in to play this game in general. And this is a kind of mixed, I guess, especially if you aren't sure you want to play competitive. I think it's definitely mixed. So on the positive side, clearly the adventure decks themselves are free. I mean, free beyond the cost of however you want to print and play it and the uh, potential hassle of that. But uh, then to actually play, you know, you need to get some Keyforge decks. You got to buy, I think, a starter set if you want to get like the uh, component, like the tokens and things. But, you know, buying one starter set will be enough for you to play uh, two player, right, Peter? Do starters come with two? Yep, they sure do for 25 bucks. Yeah, so you can play, that's two different decks to play solo, you can play two-player, and then if you want to add in a few more decks for variety in what you take against the boss, or just to play at higher player counts, you know, decks are very cheap. Ten bucks. And they're often on sale, yeah. So I think that uh, the buy-in is not that bad, but uh, that being said, you know, if you don't think you'll play competitive, is the co-op and solo going to be enough? And I guess I'll kind of leave that point for the rest of the review, because that's what we're going to be answering the uh, question of. But yeah, I think that it's not a huge buy-in, but keep in mind that there's only these two adventures and FFG has indicated they're not making any more. At least I don't think they are. So this is going to be it for solo co-op content. And although there's the random draw of which cards you get for the uh, different scenarios, most of the variety is going to come in playing different decks against them, which means you might want to keep on buying more decks. So it is something to think about. Yeah, and that's my number five, too. It's the print and play aspect of it. And we'll get into the pros and cons of that when we get to the end. I do agree. It's very much a mix. Now, what I will say is the community has apparently made their own adventures. And there are at least three more of them out that are recognized by the community as something you know that's good, that actually do things differently even than what they've done in the two adventures that have been out. But I will also say, as a pro... You actually don't need to spend the 25 bucks to buy a starter kit. There are actually free print and play decks right in the same place on the Fantasy Flight Keyforge page where you can download your own free decks from there as well. Now, obviously, they're not going to be unique to you, but they put out decks for people to play the game and try the game in the past. So, yeah, you won't have all the tokens and stuff, but you can use whatever you want for a token cubes. I mean, any of us who have bought any games in the past will have something we can use as tokens for like stun or damage or whatever else. That shouldn't be much of a problem. The benefit of print and play is you can do it for free. The non-benefit is it's going to be a little bit of extra work. Now, I will say this is also, if you're a TTS person, it's available on Tabletop Simulator too. There are a bunch of good mods up there. And if you already own Keyforge decks, you can even import your own decks into a lot of these mods as well. So there are ways to play without printing and playing. But yeah, it's definitely not something you could just go to the store, spend your 50 bucks or whatever, and take home with you. Yep, and that's good. I didn't know about the uh, free print and play decks. So that is very cool, as long as you like printing and playing a lot. <laughs> well, the, the decks are only, what, 36 cards? So the decks aren't... Look, if you're in it for a nickel, you're in it for a dime or whatever the saying is. Like, if you're printing and playing the adventure, that's going to be more work than printing and playing one deck, for sure. Yes. 
right, so my uh, number four is a full-on con, and that's, and this is something you see a lot with competitive games that then just kind of add on a solo co-op mode, and that's that, although, as Peter said, your turn plays out identically to a regular Keyforge turn, that doesn't mean that your card effects play out identically. And, you know, Peter let me, he has a big collection, I played through with three or four of his different decks, and... It's not like no card, there there are no cards that are just dead cards, like they do nothing, but there are some cards that are clearly really good and competitive and almost useless, especially depending on which adventure you take it against. And that's another thing, like just some decks don't do well against these adventures. So the fact that you're buying these decks and they're totally random, maybe we should say that these are totally blind purchases for decks. It's not like LCGs, like Fancy Flight's other games. So yeah, you, you could get decks that like just don't play well or don't play in a fun way against some of these adventures, although the two adventures are different. So if a deck doesn't play well against Key Rackin, it might be okay against the Abyssal Conspiracy. But I, I definitely found myself getting frustrated because I would like draw cards and I'd be like, this card is terrible because of how the AI has been done, because they don't play like a player in a lot of ways. Like a perfect example, there's a lot of cards that will return a card from play to the owner's hand. Which usually, because of other stuff we'll get into, like the whole house system, means that it might be tough for them to get that card out again. But for the boss that is played immediately the next turn, no matter what, unless you have another card that can discard a card from their hand. And that's another thing. Cards that discard cards can be useless unless they happen to get a card in their archives. There was like a lot of moments like that where I was like, man, this would have been great in any regular game of Keyforge. And it's so situational and hard to use in this adventures mode specifically. So you can definitely see the fact that this was grafted on to a competitive game. And that left me a little bit uh, upset sometimes while I was playing. Yeah, and they do have mechanics for each of those things, like discard, take something out of their archive, but you're right, if there's nothing in their archive, it doesn't matter, and putting back in their hand would put it in their archive, which means they don't actually get to use it that turn, so it saves you one turn of whatever, but it is only one turn of whatever. Yeah, no, I I can see where you're coming from there. I will say decks that are typically... Look, good decks are good decks. I mean, that is one thing about Keyforge. You got to know coming in. There are going to be better decks and there are worse decks. I will say that there are better and worse decks against the adventures as well. So something that might be good and competitive might not be good, as Mike was saying, but it could be the opposite too. So the nice part for Keyforge players, so especially if you have your own Keyforge decks already, the nice part for those players is you get to use some of those decks you wouldn't use as often because they're not as good in competitive play for whatever reason that will actually be better in these adventures as well. And I think they did that somewhat intentionally where some of the stuff that wasn't as good against other players becomes much better because it's a lot more combat focused, even in the second one where it's, it is a lot about gaining Amber and controlling Amber and stuff. There still is a lot of combat in that one as well. So much more than you'd see in a normal game of Keyforge. I don't have that as a point. That's why I added onto it, but I agree with you wholeheartedly that there are definitely just decks and cards that, that won't work nearly as well in these. But my number four is the simple turn structure. And that's one of my favorite parts about Keyforge as it is. It's literally pick a house, do everything you can with that house, pass the turn to the next player. And all that happens here is then the AI does the same thing. Like play a card or two from their hand, whatever they have in front of them activates, and then they're done. In some games like this, especially when there's board elements or whatever else, these things can get overwrought. I don't think it's that way in this game. I actually found it to be pretty quick. Mike might disagree with me on that a little bit, but I actually thought it's pretty quick to run the AI turns, especially once you get going. So for me, I like how simple the turn structure is. I like that they kept it similar to what you're doing in Keyforge. Certainly when you're playing your turn, most of the stuff you're doing feels like you're playing Keyforge. And because I like Keyforge a lot, I had a lot of fun with that simple turn structure as well. So that's my number four. Yeah, and that's my number three, so I, I do agree with you. I think it plays very quickly on the enemy side. Specifically, I'm looking at the enemy turn structure. The player turn structure will kind of come in later for me. But yeah, it's, it's as simple as just drawing a few cards. The effects are generally very straightforward. And even when the boss has like six enemies in front of them, it's usually very quick to resolve that part of the turn. It's like, this one gets them a gem or an amber. This one attacks. This one attacks. Like it, It's not like they have tons of effects you have to keep track of every turn. Pretty much everybody has like an effect when they come into play or it's just discarded right away. So stuff isn't that hard to keep track of. But uh, that being said, I kind of combine two things here. I still didn't love all the time the enemy turn and like kind of how they worked. I do think that the play of the turn is quick. The part I didn't like is that uh, the difficulty balancing I thought was kind of clunky. 
because basically they're like, just have them draw more or fewer cards. But I found one card a turn is pretty easy, like kind of too easy. But then two cards a turn is like really challenging, especially depending on which deck you're playing with. So I guess, yeah, you could do something like one card this turn, two cards the next turn, just try to keep track of it. The other thing is, this is kind of like some of my games of Marvel Champions, uh, some of my games of Sentinels of the Multiverse, like any of these kind of like card-based games where an enemy is putting out cards every turn. But I I personally, this is a personal thing. I know Peter doesn't mind it as much, and like Terrence that he plays Marvel Champions with minds it almost not at all. I I didn't love it when sometimes the boss would ramp up to a crazy extent and would like kill all of my stuff and just have like tons of stuff out. It wasn't like a fun experience. And and I, sometimes I still won those games, which I guess is fun for some players. Like, oh, I, you know, clawed my way back from the brink. But I found it often frustrating because they just kind of ramp up so quickly again when you get into like more cards per turn that it just wasn't like fun for me necessarily. So I, I guess it all comes to I wish there was like a little bit more kind of minute control of the difficulty. Yeah, granularity. That's a good way to say it. And that's even worse when you go into co-op play, but that's kind of going into my second point. So I'm going to stop there. Well, then your second point and my third will be probably similar, which is I don't think the game scales very well, especially as you get to higher player counts. One and two players, I think, are fine. We've said that about a lot of games lately, so maybe this is more on us than the games. But I think once you get to three or more players, the downtime becomes burdensome because each player is going to take their turn and then do an AI turn. Again, it's not that big a deal to do the AI turns when it's just you playing. But now when you got to wait for two other people, not only to take their turn, but then do AI turns... It's quick, but it's not that quick. You know what I mean? It's it's like, you know, pandemic is super quick. You flip two cards, you put cubes on the board. That's it. These turns can take a little bit more than that and a little bit more involved. So while I do like the simple turn structure, I do think with the more players you add, the more that downtime adds up. And not only that, but especially in the first one, the key rack in, and this is the first place I'm going to differentiate the two. The key rack in one had a scaling issue with player count because what would happen is they had one enemy AI battle line. So one person would go and then the AI did some stuff, including putting creatures in play. Then the second person would go and the AI would put more stuff in play. Then the third player would go and they'd have to deal with all that stuff that was already put out from the first couple players. And then now they're stuck dealing with all that. Then by the time it gets back to the third player, now they got to deal with all that and more. So it just, it, it accelerates faster than the players do with the less players you get a turn, they get a turn you're building at the same rate that they are. But with multiplayer, everybody's starting on turn one from zero. There wasn't a buildup first. So that one I think has a little bit more problems with player scaling. It's fine. One player. I think it's okay. Two player. Whereas the abyssal conspiracy, each player gets their own row of enemies in front of them, which I think is just a little bit more fair. And it's a little more fun in all honesty. I, I do like abyssal conspiracy more than I like rise of the key racking. No, I, I 100% agree. And yeah, I was going to say like the kind of the buildup for co-op was unbalanced, but it is mainly key rack and it's much better. And it, it reminds me of some other games that had the same kind of issue. You look at Legendary Encounters, that's another one where players get fewer turns to build up, but the enemies are still advancing at the same rate, so their solution was to give you some free turns at the start to kind of build your deck more, but it's pretty clunky. It doesn't work in a lot of cases. That game could be, like, impossible at the highest player counts. Compared to, I think, a game like Sentinels, for all its other issues, Sentinels of the Multiverse, I should clarify, does it better. I prefer games where, like, the boss draws one card, but that card is scaled for the player's instead of uh, it being like where they draw a card per player and you get into some of the situations we're talking about. But like you said, Peter, they fixed it for the Abyssal thing. So the only thing I'll add in for my number two is taking away the potential player count issues for co-op, which are somewhat scenario dependent. You might disagree with me on this, Peter, but it didn't feel very cooperative to me because, for example, in the rules, they clarify that other players, creatures and things are like not friendly creatures which means like a lot of effects. I mean, there are some things you can put on anybody, so it doesn't matter. You can like upgrade somebody else's creatures. But like I said earlier, it's a card game that was built for competitive. So it's not like they have fun cooperative effects like in the cards. So it's pretty much you all. And, and again, Abyssal Depths is better because they have this map. So at least you can kind of like cooperate to get things explored a little bit. But apart from that, it's really just you kind of slamming your head into them on your turn. And then the next person slams their head into them on their turn. And, you know, the fact that Peter said the downtime can be bad at higher player counts combined with the fact that I can't really do anything on your turn and it doesn't even really affect what I'll do it on my turn necessarily 
makes uh, this one that I would not recommend. Like, I think it's probably best as a solo game or maybe a two-player game. I think uh, as you're going up, like, the play will still be interesting, but I would not say it's very cooperative play. Yeah, and Abyssal Conspiracy does some things differently where you can, if you're at the same location, you can attack their battle line. So if somebody really needs help, you can go help them out. And they do some things where the artifacts get placed on locations. So there are things you can do to help each other. But no, Rise of the Kiraken is exactly the opposite, which is the more stuff I don't take care of on my turn, that's just the more crap you got to deal with on your turn. <laughs> so like, it's almost anti-cooperative because it's like, well, I can't deal with that. That's that's on you. And now all your stuff is dead by the time you even get to go. I agree with a lot of what you said there. I do think there are some cards you can play that affect other players. And so those are kind of cool, especially as you get to board wipes and stuff like that. Like, do I kill all the creatures on my board, their board, and all my friendly stuff like where do i go with this so i do think there are some interesting plays that will take some consideration you had a card the other day that lets you put amber on creatures that would yep. put them on mine as well so there are some cards that affect but you're right it, depending on the set specifically too you know some sets of keyforge are much better and worse at having cards that will affect other people's play sure so sure 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 that's certainly a, a great point to bring up though My number two is a full-on pro for me, but might not be for others, which is it's Keyforge, but co-op. And it does feel like Keyforge. Like, if you've played Keyforge and you don't like it, you probably won't like this. If you've played Keyforge and you love it and you want to play it all the time and you probably have a bunch of decks already, guess what? You're going to probably enjoy this, especially at lower player count. I mean, especially solo. You know, it gives you a chance to try out new decks solo. It gets you to try different things. It lets you, while the scaling of difficulty isn't great, it lets you put your deck up against harder and harder challenges so you can scale the difficulty and see how high your favorite decks can perform or some of your least favorite decks. Let you pull them out again and play in a more relaxed environment against the lower difficulty opponent. So you can do a lot of things. If you like the game of Keyforge, I think you won't be disappointed by playing this. Now you may be disappointed at playing it co-op as Mike said, or higher player count. But I think if you're looking to play Keyforge more and you just don't get enough Keyforge in, which is exactly me, like my son was, and I were playing it a lot at the beginning, but now he's getting older, doing more stuff with his friends, more video games, more whatever. I don't get as much Keyforge as I want to. And this lets me, Go buy a deck, open it up, and have a whole new experience playing Keyforge against this same enemy I fought 100 times, but now my deck's going to be very different, and I don't know what's coming up. So for people who love Keyforge, I really think this is a good thing and a good way for people to get it to the table, to the physical table, and just play more Keyforge. And speaking of Keyforge, my number one is all about Keyforge, kind of taking away the adventurous thing for a second. Probably the most, I think, distinct thing about Keyforge, besides it's kind of random decks with weird names. And that's the whole idea that Peter talked about at the beginning of choosing a house at the start of your turn. So you have three suits, basically, in your deck. And at the beginning of each of your turns, you pick one, and those are the only cards you can play. And this is very much a mix for me. And this is kind of going to Keyforge in general, not just the adventures, because it's cool in a lot of ways. It does force the player into tough choices, tougher than you might have in a card game of this type usually. Because if you have two of each suit, which suit do you want to call? And what do you want to discard? What do you want to keep? You often discard cards that could be somewhat useful right now, just so you can like get more draw into your hand. But then uh, it gets even more interesting when there's lots of artifacts and creatures on the board, because to use them to their full effect, you generally need to call their house. So do you call like the house that you have four cards of in your hand, or do you call the house that you only have one card of in your hand, but there's three things on the board already? So I think those are interesting. I I like the choices that are there. We're even designing a game that has a similar kind of system, and I like how the choices work for that. The thing is specifically in Keyforge, a game, especially in these adventures, I should say, where the enemy is ramping up very quickly, where like lots of things are happening, where your cards are getting killed very fast, like often your creatures won't even last more than a turn or two. I can find it incredibly frustrating while also appreciating the interesting choices they give, because especially when, and this happens a lot, when you get like a hand that is mixed with like two cards of each suit, and often one of those two cards for each of the suits won't really be useful to the current situation, you can feel like you do almost nothing on your turns, especially when you either uh, have all your stuff get wiped, which the bosses will often do in the adventure mode, or when you like are starting out and haven't had a chance to kind of build up stuff. So compared to a game like uh, 
like Marvel Champions to kind of compare it to, because I know it's uh, one of Peter's other favorites. In that one, I always feel like I have choices. And even if I still only play like two cards in my turn, which is how much I might play in Keyforge as well, at least I made the choice to play two cards and I spent other cards to do it. Uh, Keyforge, my turns often feel very limited and unfun. Now, over the course of the whole game, it's fun. And I like building up and like having stuff killed and trying to figure out how to kind of scrabble my way back. But at the same time, it can be very frustrating. And sometimes your turns will just be dull as heck. At least they go quickly. But yeah, I'm sort of mixed on the whole like house choosing thing as it works in Keyforge, especially in Keyforge Adventures. I think everything I'm saying is exacerbated by the adventure mode and more so with (laughs) co-op. So I'm not sure where I land on in the end. I know I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's it's got some interesting parts. Yeah. And I think it's something that as time goes on, you get more and more used to it. I mean, I don't know how much you look through your discard pile, but when you have those two, two, two hands, sometimes the best thing to do is play cards that you've already played a lot of. That way, you know, you're going to draw into the other two houses. So there's definitely some of that that comes with more playing of Keyforge as well, not just playing the cards in front of you. But I think even when you have three or four card hands, sometimes it's, well, do I think I can build this up to a five or six card hand and have an even cooler turn next turn by getting rid of some of these other cards? So I think there is more to it, but everybody who's playing it for the first time, you're not going to see that. But I agree. I mean, there are times where it's just, you're going to have a dud turn and it does happen even, you know, to people who've played it a hundred times. For me, this is another thing that is to do with Keyforge, not necessarily the adventures as much, but the different decks feel different. I think we've covered this quite a bit here. Every Archon feels different. It's one of my favorite parts of Keyforge. It is definitely works here with Keyforge Adventures too. Some people aren't going to like that. Some people aren't going to like the fact, you know, we talked about how hard the difficulty scaling is to do because one card feels like it's a little on the easy end, but two cards is like, feels way worse than twice as bad because it just accelerates and now you've got stuff sitting on the board and now you got one thing on the board next turn you have two then three then four and it just accelerates and accelerates and it's hard to keep up so i think the difficulty scaling is hard to do from the adventure game itself but the archons are different in difficulty as well and some people are going to like this and some people are not And I think that's another way to scale difficulty. I think that in and of itself, all right, I got a really good Archon here that's doing really good against this adventure. Now let me try two cards. Now let me try three cards a turn and see if it can handle it. See if you could push the deck to its limits. And there are other things you can do. You can scale difficulty with chains and things like that, which means basically drawing less cards per turn for a certain amount of turns. So you could do that to yourself at the beginning of the game. Let me start this game. This deck's really good, but I don't think I can do three cards. Let me do two cards and start myself with six chains and let's see how that works out. So you just have a slower buildup at the beginning. So there are things you can do to mess with difficulty. But one of my th- favorite things about Keyforge, one of my favorite things about Keyforge Adventures is how different every Archon deck feels and how they all play very differently. I, I know you said you played three different decks. Did you feel you got different experiences even playing against the same yeah, and you know what? I I should have mentioned that because I usually like the diversity. It's a little bit weird for me to like compliment the game on the diversity because you are spending $10 a pop to get a random diversity. <laughs> you know what sure. I mean? Yes. And like you might get a deck that's just like not fun for you to play for your play style or total crap. Well, not total crap. I don't think any deck is like that bad, but some are worse for the adventures. But no, you're right. It, it is very cool. Even decks with the exact same houses can have very different like tricks and combos in them. So Yes, that, that is certainly a positive if you're willing to put in the money to get several decks. Cool. All right, well, let's do final thoughts. Mike, where are you at? Yeah, so I mean, I don't love Keyforge anyway, so it's not like Adventures changed it. And in many ways, I think it is a worse experience than Keyforge. That being said, if you think you might play competitive, Keyforge is a cool game. I think it's still got a pretty good positive scene. It's not that expensive to buy into. You don't have to like, you know, it's not like Magic the Gathering where you have to buy tons of stuff to be competitive. You can just get a few decks and play around with them. So I think the fact that they did Adventures as a free PNP is an awesome move. Really applaud Fantasy Flight for it. I don't think it's the best way to play the game. I think it's got some issues, especially if you go into like three plus players and even two players can be a little weird. But if you're interested in Keyforge, you can do the uh, free decks like Peter talked about. You can try out just a couple decks and see how you like it. If you find you love it, you'll have a great competitive game with some solo and co-op there as well. But yeah, if if you're like, I'm going to get this, I'm never going to play competitive. I just want to play it co-op. I'd be a little cautious about that choice. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm a little more positive, as you guys might guess. Keyforge, still one of my favorite games of all time. I'm very different from Mike on the, the game overall. I love it. I don't mind the different decks being different power levels. Certainly, you want them close enough where the, the lower end decks can beat the higher end decks. We're talking on the competitive end here. For cooperative, I actually think it's just a pro that the decks are different power levels. As much as you say you might find a deck that isn't fun for you, I've found them all to be fun for me, as long as I can figure them out. That I think that's the fun part for me. It, unlike other games where you're trying to build like a best deck or whatever, here you're just given what you're given and you've got to figure out the puzzle of that deck. And I found that every deck, even my best deck, the deck I love playing now, I have the most fun with. I lost my first six games with that deck because I couldn't figure out its trick. And once I did, now I have fun playing it. And then, of course, you got to play it differently against different decks. And that's what's kind of cool. And that's why even though Rise of the Key Rack, and I don't think as is as good as Abyssal Conspiracy, I do like taking your same deck and trying it against different adventures. And I do hope they come up with more in the future. They haven't really said one way or another whether they're going to do that or not. I'm glad the community's taken the bull by the horns, though, and made their own. Um, I haven't tried any of them, but I'm looking forward to doing that. Mike has all my stuff right now, so I can't <laughs> wait to uh, sorry, get sorry. my stuff back. No, that's okay. I mean, that's like that's what we do to get these reviews done, right? I, I do look forward to getting all my stuff back and trying some of these other adventures. I just found out about them myself not long ago. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Keyforge's game I really like. And if for nothing else, just to get the game to the table more often in a fun, challenging solo experience, I, I'm with Mike when it comes to co-op. I'm not sure how good it scales. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I don't like the way it scales, certainly to three players. I think one and two are definitely the best ways to play, one probably being my favorite. So um, just keep that in mind. And this is from somebody who loves Keyforge as well, though. All right. So uh, let's get into a brief discussion about PNP games. Uh, we have not made a game specifically for, for PNP, like where that was our end goal. All our games that we've designed, we hope would get picked up by a publisher and like get a full distribution and all that. But we certainly made PNP versions of our games. But uh, there are, I mean, especially solo, there's a vibrant scene of like card-based PNP games and bigger games than that. War games have tons of PNP and there are some co-op games as well. So, Peter, what do you think are maybe some pros of doing this print-and-play model for your game design? Well, I mean, the pros is if you have a small game, something, and I think that's the key for me, small games benefit hugely from print-and-play for a couple reasons. Number one, it's easy to get people to do. It's way easier for me to get you to print nine cards, 18 cards, than it is to get you to print 250 cards and a board and tokens and standees and all of this stuff. So I, I think if your game is the right size for it, I think it is way easier. If your end goal is to get people to play your game, I think it's way easier to get them to play something that's small with no investment, right? All they need is a little bit of printer paper and some card sleeves, and then they can play your game. So I think if you're trying to get your game played by a bunch of people, you know, because a lot of these small games, by the time you print them and ship them and everything else, it's going to cost way more than it should for people to purchase it in the store. So I definitely think there are times where a game is perfectly suited for print and play. And I do think there are huge benefits to it. Or if you've already put out a game, doing a print and play expansion, I think is a good way to judge, first of all, not only market demand, but build hype for something you're doing in the future. Let's say, for example, these Keyforge adventures were just a way to prime the market a little bit. And now they came out with a whole co-op game based on them. I think the Keyforge community would, would be much more excited for it now that they've had a chance to play this for free, almost like a sample. And now they can invest fully in it. So I think there are a couple of times for me where it really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And you hit on a lot of the things that I was going to say. A big thing is it can lead to more. And I don't know if you should do a print and play game with that idea because you'll probably be disappointed most of the time. But there are lots of, for example, print and play competitions and often the game, or maybe not often, but sometimes <laughs> the games that win those competitions will then get optioned by a publisher. Or, you know, if you have a, especially if you have like an 18 card game, maybe somebody like Button Shy would be willing to publish your game. So I do think it's kind of a double thing here. If you make a small game, a card only game, that's already easier for publishers to make anyway. So it might be easier to find somebody interested in making it or make it yourself, honestly. But also print and play can... In addition to like kind of finding more players like Peter talked about, which is great for playtesting, 
because <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say print and play games should be like a totally unfinished crappy product. And you just like kind of put it out there and let people make it better for you. But I also think it is not held to the standard of a like full game that I am buying a box of that I did not have to make myself. So if you can get really good feedback, you can improve the game. There's certainly print and play games that have gone through many iterations. I think you can get uh, attention from publishers if your game gets a good reputation. Even if you decide to kickstart it or put it on GameFound yourself, you have a potentially built-in audience already ready to support you if you have already kind of gotten your print and play game out there and it's popular. And th- that kind of goes into one other thing I want to say, and then I'll pass it back to you, Peter. I think probably the danger or the quote-unquote danger that designers would be afraid of with print-and-play games is that if somebody print and plays it, they will not buy it. And I'm not saying that's never true, but gosh, I mean, there are so many games that went from print-and-play to an official edition, and usually, in my experience, the people who are the ones who printed and played it are the first ones in line to pay you for the game because they want to support you, because they want a nicer version of the game, because they want new art, because they want the more uh, fine-tuned mechanics. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but kind of like designers who are worried that every publisher out there that they send their prototype to is going to steal their game design, I think that's also mostly a totally unfounded fear. I think the fear that like I did a print in place and now no one's ever going to buy it is not true. And, and same thing with like a TTS mod. Like there's so many people playing games on TTS, but I don't know, at least in the people I know, if they love a game, they're going to buy the physical copy. They're not going to play it like a hundred times on TTS and literally never pony up any money for the game. Well, even look at me. I play almost exclusively Marvel Champions on TTS, but I own everything. Like, I, I, I feel weird about playing something that I haven't bought already. So even for me, who doesn't mind playing on TTS, I still want to buy the physical version because what happens when I have friends over? I can't. I'm not going to pull out a computer and play on TTS <laughs> with them, right? It's a, I'm not going to bring out crappy home printed cards. I mean, it may be, you know, for you and Jerry, but, you know, if I got other friends over, I don't want a, a crappy version of the game. I want a nice version. And the number of people, even for a small game that are willing to print and play versus the number of people that go out and spend 10 bucks on your game, right? If it's that small, like it, it's going to be a huge difference in the number of people willing to do that. So even even if you took away 10% of your market, which I think is high, right? I don't think even 10% are on TTS and printing games off. You still have 90% of your market there. So I can't imagine it taking away. I think it can only build on that if you're using it as somewhat of a demo or whatever else for your fuller game. I do have a negative, though, for print and play. And I think this is something that the Keyforge designers experienced when they put it out. And that was people basically pushing back against it and saying, I don't want to print and play this. I would have paid 10 or 15 bucks for this. And that's where we're getting to that 10% versus 90% thing. I think you might turn off a portion of your fan base if you're releasing it as a print and play only. Like it doesn't match up, especially if you have a physical game and now you're printing and playing just a, a small portion of that game, like an expansion or something else. It doesn't match up with the other cards you have, things like that. Uh, I know Fantasy Flight has done quite a few print and play only expansions just for Marvel Champions even. And like, I haven't printed any of that stuff because what am I going to do with it? It won't match anything I have. I can't really play it with what I have. So I, I think there is some negatives there as well. When I think the two big things for me with that, first of all, I think it was a totally different standard of that. And I'm sure you'd agree, Peter, with something like Day or Fantasy Flight and with a game that's already published versus like somebody dipping their toes into getting their game out there. Maybe that's where they stop or maybe they take it further. I've never heard somebody complain like, hey, this card game you just designed for free and sent everyone out for free on the Internet. How dare you? <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> you know I mean? Absolutely. Yes. Um, but yes, if, if it's Fantasy Flight and theoretically they could print it for real and make some money or even do their old print on demand thing, which they used to do, which is like kind of like print and play, but they do it for you. I, I can see people being like more upset with that. Now, the right way to do that, and I've seen this with many games, is if you're going to have like print and play materials and you know it won't match, make the expansion content something that never is shuffled in with the base game content. And there's lots of great examples of like people doing that. Because then who cares if your card stock is different? Who cares if people, uh, you know, print it out on a different size or put it in sleeves and don't sleeve the rest of the stuff? If it's its own separate thing, like you shuffle those cards, but you never shuffle them with the main game cards, that's fine. Now, I guess... 
Marvel Champions that wouldn't work because no, yeah, to. they're cards you add into the enemy deck. Right, right exactly. They're supposed to be yeah. shuffled with them. It's yeah, like, so, so, so that, that, is a, that, that is a bad example of it. So that's them doing it the wrong way. <laughs> but I, I think there are ways to do the print and play for published games. I just think if you do that, try to make the expansion kind of its own separate thing in a way. Yeah, no. And my only other thing is it doesn't show confidence. And especially, again, we're, we're kind of going back to the big publisher here. It doesn't show confidence in a product if you're releasing it as a print and play and saying, well, we'll see what happens. If people like it, we'll keep doing it. That's not a that's not a way you show confidence in your products, right? It's like, well, I don't know if this thing's good or not. You tell me if it's good, right? So I think if you print something, you put your own money into it. I mean, people have made that argument about Kickstarter. I think it's less true there because you do have to invest so much time and effort and money in to just put it on Kickstarter. Whereas, I don't know. I, it just shows a lack of support. It's just like, yeah, we kind of put this thing together. Here you go. You play it if you want. Now, I don't mind them doing that if they're going to then print it and and have it for purchase later. But when they say, well, we'll have it for purchase later, maybe if it's good, I don't know. Like it just shows a lack of confidence to me in the design. Why wouldn't you want it to be something that you could make money on if that's an option and if people are excited about it? Yep. So uh, definitely try out the print and play thing. I think it's a great way to get started. Just And there's nothing wrong also with that being the end. Like, I think a lot of our conversation has been about like, how can this get your game discovered? How can it get it published? But there are great designers who just make free print and plays or not even not free. There are people who sell print and play games and that's all they do. That's kind of the be all end all of their game. Or they uh, put it up on some of the websites they have that will like do nice versions of print and play games for you. And that's fine too. I mean, you do what you want to do with your design. If you're happy just to have people playing it and enjoying it, regardless of whether you make money, because God knows it's tough to make money in board games anyway, that's cool too. Just some thoughts on print and play, and thanks everybody for listening. Yeah, and we will talk to you in a couple weeks with another review. It might be Marvel Champions. It might be one of these other things. Mike's got interested in dungeon crawls again. Who knows? At least for a minute. (laughs) Nice. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list. Yeah, not, not very co-op at all, but Keyforge Adventures, both solo and co-op, and it's a print and play, so we'll be getting into our thoughts on that. Yeah, and uh, it is interesting, so we'll we'll save that for later, and I, I shouldn't have said anything, so let's just go into uh, banter. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought you might say what our design discussion is. Oh, you kind of said it. Okay. Please, if you haven't checked out One Shop, One Shop. Wow, we're going to have bloopers. We haven't had bloopers in a while. <laughs> Just... yeah, it's a lot of you messing up words. <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, that's uh, Valor and Villainy. Hold on, let me find the actual name. Uh, Lutwig, Lut, Lutwig's, Lutwig's Labyrinth. Hold on, do it, do it all from the beginning. <laughs> that was terrible. Yep. All right, so, so oh. <laughs> we're doing it at the same time. We're, we're yep, you, it's you in <laughs> Hey, Mike. Yeah. I got this new friend. His name's Harold. Does he have a purple crayon? I don't know. I printed him. Maybe I can print a crayon too.